Today, we are talking to Brian Balfour, the CEO and co-founder of Reforge, and we discuss what it means to develop a frontier skill set, how positive customer feedback fuels our fire, and what not to do when growing a business. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. <laughs> oh man so what are you doing now you i was reading you got this thing called reforge going on you're teaching people how to grow based on all the experience you have yeah so basically like i think um you know we're we're entering a world where uh especially in the technology space but i think this is actually proliferating to like any any industry that you work in where um uh at some point everything is going to be what we call a frontier skill set it's going to be a new topic uh, or something that has emerged in the last few years and the challenge with that, right. And, and that's going to just accelerate, right? Like that change is accelerating, which means we as professionals need to be constantly reinventing ourselves, um, over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, our, our education systems are just not built for that. Um, nor have we been like, a lot of us haven't really been trained on that mindset, you know, coming through that education system. And, um, and so as part of that, like Reforge, uh, what we really focus on is what we call masterclasses uh, around these frontier skill sets. So they're for people who are three or more years into their career. Uh, we, um, they're taught by leading, um, like leading practitioners rather than tenured professors. You do them alongside your actual job and, and career versus taking full time off. Um, most companies kind of support them and expense them versus you going into debt out of pocket uh, you get to meet all these other really high quality practitioners as part of the program, not just, you know, consume and learn a lot of things. And so, you know, we're basically just, um, we're looking at, uh, uh, it, you know, we're thinking about, well, what is, what is that next version of, you know, graduate level uh, professional education look like? Um, and obviously we're starting very small um, in, our, you know, in my domain of like growth and customer acquisition. And, uh, and we've been doing that for a couple of years and have about a thousand, a little over a thousand alumni now. And, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, slow, slowly expanding, being, being patient, making, you know, big thing about education is you, you got to get the quality right. Um, so, uh, uh, it's definitely a slower build versus some of my other companies. Yeah. I like this frontier skill set. I haven't heard that before, but when you describe it, I'm fully on board a hundred percent. What you're mentioning about school is it's extraordinarily backwards with the, the 12 years of being taught repetition and these basic, these math and sort of language skills are the most important things to prepare you for the world while they are absolutely not. And right. And then they, it's so backwards because they're, they're having them teach from these books and this, this information is becoming commoditized. So you can just instantly pull it up. Right. So the act or the art of being able to remember large sums of information and spit them back that you don't care about uh, is kind of not that great of an art. And at the same time, the most difficult things that exist in our society are taught through doing. Like my brother and stepmom are both doctors. And at the med schools, you're essentially half of your four years med school is just in the office with another doctor actually performing surgeries and learning and stuff hands-on. So that's sort of like, why don't we apply that to 
all the trades. Like, why don't we apply that to learning everything? We'll just put the people with the experts and let them, you know, monkey see, monkey do. Yeah. I mean, I think um, certainly like among, uh, you know, developers and software engineers, I actually think like out of all of the different skill sets and professions, probably that category has done the best job of embracing the mindset of just constantly learning um, through doing, you know, to stay relevant and, and stay up to date. Uh, you know, it's just interesting that um, some of the other, I think, kind of skill sets and categories are now like catching up to uh, the same, a similar pace of change that, you know, I think developers see in all of the new emerging technologies um, that just just crop up all over the place. And, and growing up, it was taught to me that you go and you get a job and you do this one thing for 30 years and then you get a retirement. Like you go and you learn one skill and you do that one thing for 30 years. I've had to learn six to eight different, very different skills, job sets in going through the progression of my career so far. And I'm 30. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I grew up a half hour outside of Detroit, you know, so when I grew up, the plan was, you know, you got good grades in high school, got to a, a good in-state college, you got an engineering degree and you worked for one of the big three car companies for 40 years and retired with an amazing, an amazing pension. Right. Um, like that was the plan. That's like kind of what all of our, uh, parents had done. You know, there was a big portion of my family that had done that. And, uh, and for some reason, um, luckily I think I'm, I'm very lucky in this sense that something about that just never really like stuck with me. And, uh, and so I never really, I never really pursued that path. And I was always like kind of learning new things, but similar, like I started off actually as, as a software engineer for my first couple of years of my career, I was a, I was a pretty terrible one. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, and then I switched, uh, and then, you know, I worked more on the product side for probably about four or five years. And then, uh, then through one of my first startups in the social gaming space, when, you know, Zynga and the Facebook plant platform emerged, that's really kind of where I started to get into uh, this like very quantitative focused customer acquisition. And then kind of coming out of that, um, just having had all three of those experience, I started just blending them all three together, uh, you know, towards this purpose of, you know, helping startups grow. And obviously the, the term growth kind of got slapped on top of that uh, as part of that process. And it's now a little bit more of a known thing, but um, similar thing, like gone through multiple reinventions and, and, uh, and, and it's been, um, I'm, I'm, I feel almost lucky that I have, I have, uh, that I have done that for, cause for some reason it's become very natural to me. So when you founded this Reforge, were you just like hanging out with Andrew, having a beer and you're like, you know, this is how people actually learn. Let's make a school that teaches how people actually learn. Um, <laughs> no, it actually came from. Uh, a totally different place. So, you know, my time at HubSpot, uh, it was, uh, man, I learned so much at my time at HubSpot, but uh, one of the things that I experienced there was I would sit in these one-on-ones um, with different members of my team every single week. And uh, it was inevitable, like somebody, at least one person on my team every single week would, uh, you know, come in with a question to one of those one-on-ones of like how they could continually, you know, uh, develop professionally. Um, and as we dug in, what what I found was that uh, they weren't seeing much out there that really appealed to them because um, there's a ton of new great companies that have that have cropped up with like helping people get uh, jobs in 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 their space um, as an outcome. And then you know on the other end of the spectrum, you've got these twenty thousand dollar 
per weekend executive education courses offered by like Stanford and HBS and stuff. And, you know, to be honest, those are really more of just like, you know, getting the stamp on your, on your LinkedIn um, profile, but kind of sitting in this middle, there's like, you know, there's this huge void of like those, once again, those, those people, those practitioners that have a few years of experience that just want to continue moving forward, accelerating um, and kind of reaching their goals there wasn't anything that kind of really fit their lifestyle. And so, um, out of like all those conversations with my team members, I mean, the flip side of it is like, I didn't actually know what to recommend them either. So I felt like a terrible manager. <laughs> and, um, and so I decided that I was going to create something on my own, um, as an MVP. And, uh, as I was talking about it with a friend of, uh, a friend of mine who ended up being a mutual friend of, uh, myself and Andrew, he was like, Oh, Andrew's actually thinking about in experimenting with some very similar things. Um, and so I had known Andrew from kind of the social gaming days. And so we kind of reconnected. And, uh, as we, uh, as we started talking, we were like, you know what, let's do this. Uh, let's, let's try this together and, uh, kind of put the, put the, put the two brains together on this. And, uh, and so we kind of ran a couple MVP versions of it, um, together. And, uh, and believe me, I'm in, like when, when people talk about embarrassing MVPs, oh my God, I was embarrassed <laughs> of those first programs. But you know, look, people had some amazing things to say about it and like how they got so much value out of it and the impact it had on them, either like personally, professionally, or for them, their product and company. And so that was just kind of like, I looked, I looked at that and I was like, wow, like I was like, if this terrible little version of it can have this type of impact, I think if we um, actually spent some time on this and, and, uh, and, and invest in it, um, just, you know, what, what kind of, where's the ceiling at? And I, I kind of wanted to figure that out and that's kind of, that's how it all came together. It's, it's like fuel when people reach out to you and say, thank you, or they share a little bit. Oh, I was having some trouble and I came across your content and it really helped me and I tried it at work and it was awesome. Or Definitely. yeah, thank you so much. And when I get the, I collect them, I've actually got a, a folder on my phone called positive and I screenshot it when it comes through. Oh, that's such a good idea. Uh, I should totally do that. Thank you for giving me that idea. You are more than welcome. And whenever I get a little down, like, cause you know, we all, I'm pretty good about being, uh, like up, you know, like I'm, I've got a good, I've kind of honed my inner voice. Right. So I'm like positive and encourage myself and things like that. But you know, everyone gets down, right. We're human. And when I do, I just flip open that positive folder and I start scanning through and I'm like, this is why I do it. This is why I do it. And I just scroll through. Yeah. That's, that's a great idea. Yeah. Cause like I, I'm probably, it's interesting to hear that I probably a little bit more neutral. My, my inner mind is a little bit more neutral or like skews a little bit more like to the skeptic. And it's something that I've worked on over, over the years. And, and I still have, look, I still have my days like you know, one or two days a week where I just, I wake up and I'm like, man, why did I do this again? <laughs> right? Like it's just those types of days. And you, you're right. Like those things, those, those emails, uh, those emails definitely, definitely are a great reminder. So, um, yes, I'm going to steal that idea the second we get out off this call. Oh yeah. And there, there's some on the about page too, on the, on the website, moderncto.io slash about, I just post them randomly. I take download ones, put up new ones and just kind of keep them there. So you can, you could kind of see what, what happens, how, how yeah. it looks for me. So you, you've had four companies past 10 years, two VC backed, angel backed, bootstrapped, two acquired, one shut down, one to be determined. I'm most interested in the shutdown one. 
uh, you know, the real shutdown story was the, the one that I started in, in, in college. And this was like pre-Facebook. It was, it was basically a college-specific social network. And nice. um, I think the lessons from that were just a lot of the lessons that are now very commonly known in the entrepreneurial scene of just like having the right founder set to cover sort of the key areas of the business, being in an environment that you know, supports entrepreneurship, getting the right advisors on board, not doing too many things, right? Like really focusing. Those were really kind of the key lessons I learned on that one that really kind of, that, that led to that failure. And uh, I think people forget that. I mean, this was, uh, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to age myself here like uh-huh. maybe 16 years ago now. Yeah. And um, oh God, that's embarrassing to say, maybe a little less than that, maybe like 14, 15 years ago now. And, uh, and, but look back then, like all these like amazing blog posts and stuff from a really amazing experience, people weren't necessarily out there. And, and so, uh, you know, talk about learning the hard way, man, <laughs> I learned that one the hard way. I think that, you know, you know, Vixamo, the first company in the social gaming space, uh, you know, that ended up getting acquired by Tapjoy. It was an okay outcome. Boundless was a different scenario. You know, Boundless was an education company. And just to give people a quick background on it, we, we were targeting more of the traditional university system here in the, in the U.S. And, um, and our entry point was that uh, we wanted to create uh, we wanted to create um, completely free alternatives to a student's textbook. So no matter what the no matter what the the professor assigned, they could come to Boundless, enter their class, and we would give them exactly the material they needed, um, knowing kind of what uh, uh, what textbook uh, that 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 class was using um, for completely free. And, and so uh, we utilize all these these things called open educational resources. We had kind of this quote unquote big secret that like Peter Thiel talks about. And we went, we, you know, I'm a very hypothesis driven person. And, uh, you know, we really went in with a few different hypotheses and we got two really right and we got one really wrong. <laughs> and, yeah. and so like, you know, we went in, the three hypotheses were, you know, can we create um, a production process that equals the quality or exceeds the quality of the textbook publishers at like a hundred X the efficiency. And we actually proved that out. Like we, we figured out how to do that. You know, we could take something that a, a textbook publisher would do in two years and a couple million bucks, and we could do it in 30 to 60 days with about 10 to 15 grand of capital. Um, it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. And, um, and then the second thing that we tried to prove out was, you know, can we market these things directly to students? You know, that was a really big, now a lot of people in the education space have been very successful in creating business by marketing something directly to the students. Most of them go through these terrible processes of selling, you know, to professors or the education system. It's particularly corrupt in the, the textbook space. Um, I, I won't get into the nitty gritties there, oh, um, but we actually it. figured yeah. out how to do that too. Um, but then the third thing was like, okay, well, the whole business model was prefaced on this, uh, you know, the, the, the value prop was, was free. And we thought that we could parlay that into a more like freemium type of experience and get them to upgrade into, uh, more, uh, uh, basically paid features and uh, more of like the Spotify model or, or something similar to that. And it was amazing. Like the, you know, obvi- the, the value prop was an amazing acquisition hook. Like an amazing, amazing acquisition hook. Uh, but what ended up happening was that we were able to acquire all these users. But a couple weeks into the, a couple weeks into their course, none of them would continue using the product. And you know, as we as as we dug into, as we really, really dug into the data, what we found was that uh, 
you know, they loved us. So this is weird. This is, this is where like, you're, you got a bunch of users saying, Hey, I love you, but there's something clearly not working about the business. Right. Those, right. those are really difficult uh, things. Cause I think people look at that and they, they just gloss over the problem. But as we dug into that, what we found was just, um, they loved us because they, uh, they didn't, and they ended up not buying the textbook. So they saved a bunch of money, but once they got into the course, what they realized is what they really, all they needed were the notes for the course. And the textbook was more of a safety blanket. And the problem with that is that just didn't work as like a freemium style business. And so the, the business model was like completely, um, like our hypothesis about that was completely debunked. But at the end of the day, this is, this is the game that, this is the game that we play, you know, when we do these like VC backed startups is that we're taking these bets, um, these really big swings on these hypotheses and a lot has to go right, uh, in order to, you know, get the stars to align. And so that was, a, that was a case where we built some amazing things, but not all the stars aligned to equal, you know, a hundred million dollar plus business. Uh, and so at the end of that was, um, it ended up actually getting, um, kind of bought or, you know, kind of acquired by a Czech competitor named Valor, which then got bought by a publishing company. But, um, yeah, that, that was kind of the story of that. Happy to tell you any more about it. Acquired. I, I love that term. I've never heard it before and I'm writing it down. <laughs> I actually, it, there's like a chapter in my book called, uh, build, buy or hire your competitor. Mm -hmm. And man, I wish I could sneak that term in there before Prince next week. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, 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 I don't credit it to me. Like I, I've, it's been around a little bit. So I want to, I'm kind of curious. I've been talking a lot about education and I'd say one of the messages I get very frequently is from CS students sending me a message saying, Hey, what do I do? I'm not learning anything in school. I'm a year and a half in. Do I just go get an internship at a software company? Like, do I keep going into debt? What should I do? And I was the first time I got it, I was like, Whoa. Right. And then the other mm -hmm. times I got it, I'm like, Oh man, this is like an actual problem. <laughs> so what's yeah. going to happen with education? Do you think the college, I mean, so the colleges are writing on their brand, right? And the people co-signing loans, wanting them to have the brand. But I would say in my every, I'm a big fan of like looking at my everyday life and engaging with people And more and more and more and more. I'm seeing the 40 to 50 somethings uh, say education sucks. Didn't teach you anything. My kids don't know anything. They're in debt. Everyone's like, I, I think the, the, market's going to turn on the colleges. I just don't know if it's a decade, two decades, three decades or, or how they're going to adapt. What do you, what do you think is going to happen? Um, it's really hard to say, like, I think you really got to look, I mean, so look, there's, there's what's going to happen to the market. And then, and then there's like what you control yourself. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and that's what I think people should really be focusing on. But, you know, like I, I have maybe somewhat of a controversial view on this, but, um, I think actually the current system, if you uh, if you tear back the pieces, uh, you, you know, systems outcomes are really created based on uh, based on like how people were incent are incentivized. And um, at the end of the day, what what's happened is that in our in the U.S. at least in our traditional education system, we've had this cycle going on where basically, you know, the 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 colleges sell this dream have sold this dream for many years of well all you have to do is come here get any degree what degree soever and you'll get a job and uh and and because i know if they get in that all of the students will be able to get it um financed by 
a low interest loan from from the government, and uh, which doesn't really incentivize, uh, which incentivizes the the university to basically uh, just build these basically the most enticing type of environments, but not necessarily uh, the best educational environments or the, or the type of educational environments that lead to the type of outcomes. And so there's all of these perverse incentives going on where the, the, the universities are selling this dream that the, the students don't really understand that they don't, might not actually be delivered on until four plus years later until the point it's too late. And so these not only are the incentives wrong, but these feedback cycles are, 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 aren't very quick. And, uh, and so that's why you kind of get this, the ballooning effect of costs without, without necessarily the, the outcomes. And so how that comes all apart is, I don't know, but I think we have to take a really hard look at, uh, at like the underlying incentives uh, to this all. And unfortunately, I, I don't think any, any, anybody in government is going to take the stance that, uh, maybe maybe we shouldn't be giving out uh, these just like really easy low interest loans to to uh, you know to students that helps fund you know the, these universities building these like amazing like buildings uh, right. and and not actually tying it to outcomes. So that what what you can control though is in what I would say to any one of those people is. Um, at the end of the day, I, and this isn't for me, I think Naval from Angelus said, said this, the thing about education is that it's not the content or the technology that's missing. It's always the desire. It, the desire is the biggest thing that determines, um, you know, the effectiveness of, of education. And so uh, if I could go back, you know, to, you know, my first couple of years in college, uh, what I would probably really tell myself is uh, to to really just start kind of exploring a ton of different things to see what, um, you know, what interests me most. And we, the problem is, is that we haven't created these environments that help students really figure out the things that, um, that lead to that, that like intrinsic desire, those, those things that, um, that really start to align. I found that out maybe like my senior year, as I was like starting this company and I was like, holy crap, tech, you know, this technology entrepreneurship is the thing that I really want to be in, into. And, uh, by that point it was like, obviously too late to go back and major in software engineering. So I self-taught myself, but because I had that desire, right. Uh, I probably learned, you know, a hundred X more through that and through my self learning than I did through my, my four years of education at a great university. So, um, so it's, it's more about like, if you find that, if you find that thing that aligns with the desire, then so many other pieces fall into place. And, and those other pieces might be a traditional university. It might be some of these alternatives that are popping up. It might be dropping out and just paving your own path and like getting an internship. It really depends. But I think you, you got to start with the seed of it all. Yeah. Desire plays a massive role. Like if I look back on my experience, right? Because that's the, the thing I have the most of. <laughs> and I taught my, or my dad kind of pointed me in the right direction, teaching me about this amazing screen that was in front of me. Right. And I thought it was very cool that I could write a piece of code and it would speak back to me. Like it would, I could build a function and do something. I was like, Oh, this is really neat. So that got me excited and I wanted to do more and more and more and more and more. And what I guess I learned is a principle that, well, I could teach myself things that I wanted to know if the curiosity was there. Right. And so that has, I mean, at 30, I have fundamentals, 
in the most ridiculous categories from you know real estate law to insurance <laughs> like i have i have professional licenses like across, like several professional licenses for building softwares so like i built insurance software so i went and got an insurance license because i wanted to go through the class learn how an insurance worked then i actually got a job in an insurance agency and while building insurance software because i wanted to understand exactly how it worked and so that to me is not like a sad thing what a sad thing was was 10th grade being forced to go to algebra when I had no interest in algebra like that sucked and then being forced to repeat it and do this work and do all this all this repetition hours a day and something I didn't care about but what I would do is I'd leave school and then I would go at home and I'd be programming and learning and stuff and and I don't know it's there's a lot of negative attached to education and then what I find is when people get out of the forced habit of it they won't want to learn they look at it as like something they avoid oh i don't want to learn that or oh i don't want to learn that it's just like they have this whole negativity towards learning yeah well yeah that that's built up over time yeah by the the constant cycle of not aligning the education to you know the curiosity piece of it so um yeah that's that's no surprise i mean i was lucky like both of my parents were teachers and so obviously education was kind of really sort of, you know, pounded into me yeah. <laughs> like from a young childhood and its importance. And so despite my, uh, despite my, um, like apathetic approach to most of my classes, I still found a way to, to get good grades. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I said, like if, if I had found that, that thing, that, that, that nugget around that, that curiosity, that desire piece, like, uh, that, that is really what unlocks, um, that that is what unlocks uh so much learning um and so it's just spend as much time as you can finding that nugget because once you once you do it's uh it's it's the key to everything so you advise some you're an advisor to some of these startups like blue bottle coffee namo media game time mm-hmm. right and i'm curious what does it look like as far as your actual advising is it kind of like as an ad as needed basis do you have structured meetings quarterly we meet them or, or is it like what's the relationship like from you being an advisor to them i'm curious how it looks um yeah it really depends it's something that i've been pairing back lately as kind of reforge has been growing and, and the demands uh the demands grow there as well but uh what i typically like to do is uh so i think 99 percent of the equity that startups give to advisors is a complete waste because not only do the founders a lot most founders don't really know how to take advantage and get the value out of an advisor the advisor is you know is also not really incentivized to uh continue to reach out to the entrepreneur and be like book more of my time book more of my time right so right uh so it actually i just see like so many a lot of the companies i invest in uh they they give this the equity to advisors, and then two years later, they totally regret it. So, uh, for the founders sitting out there, I would just, I would just totally, I would be very, very careful and have a very, a very high bar to to that type of equity. Um, the the way that I like to structure it to make sure that the founder gets maximum value out of it is first, obviously, there needs to be somewhat of a fit with the problems um, and stage that uh, they're at and that they're facing with what I think I can really add value to in an advisor type of, of relationship and framework. 
Um, and so then what I typically do and what I prefer to do is uh, for the first probably four to six weeks, there's kind of an intense period where we meet every single week uh, for two hours. Uh, we diagnose the biggest thing that we need to work on. Um, I teach them kind of some of the frameworks that I would be thinking through to solve that problem, uh, help guide them through those frameworks kind of on their own and have them come to an answer. After that, uh, it tends to be uh, a lot lighter, maybe like uh, once they get started, like once a month or something like that. So a lot of that big, a lot of the advising that I have done has been more at the beginning stages of when they're really trying to start to formalize their growth strategy and trying to build like a more repeatable and predictable machine, teaching them sort of the growth mindset, the, the process, how to build a system around it, uh, training them on that. And so like my advising, what I really try to focus on is kind of it's the whole like uh, teaching them the fish approach of just giving them the tools and frameworks that they can really operate, that they can really operate on their own. Um, and, uh, and so I tend to go in with this very structured frame set of like first intense and then kind of pulling back, uh, pulling back over time. I think the other thing about like advisor, advisor things and something I've been seeing that become much, much more popular is, uh, the tip it used to be that advisor gigs used to be that the typical used to be two years with monthly vesting. And I see a lot more companies doing much shorter time frameworks, maybe like three months, six months, something like that. And that's because if you actually do go through a pretty significant growth curve, uh, you basic you end up actually getting into a stage of the company where uh, you know the initial advisor that you hired probably can't help with the problems that you're solving. So Game Time, for example, is now, uh, you know, I started advising them when they were maybe like four or five people. And I think they're over like a couple hundred now or 150, something like that. But the types of problems that they're facing right now are just so different than, than when I started that, uh, uh, that, you know, they're just in the stage of the business facing certain types of things that I might not be able to, um, I self-admit, I might not be able to add the most value, uh, the most value for versus kind of other people are at different stages. So that's how I tend to approach it. That's how I tend to approach advisors. But like, once again, if I was on the founder seat on the, on the flip side, it's just uh, uh, not only have a very high bar, but make sure that the advisor has done it before and has like a very structured and thoughtful approach to it. And it's not just this like ad hoc hour meetings. And then last but not least is the founder has to put the time into it as well. So they better prep. I have, I have all my founders prep. They send me notes before I have a few days to think about it. And then I can come with very prepared thoughts. Uh, so like that's, that's the other piece that makes those relationships really valuable. Oh, and last but not least, don't work with an advisor. If you're not going to take his advice, I've worked with some companies before where I spend all this time with them and they're like, yep, yep, yep. This is great. You know, I get equity out of the deal, but then they don't go and implement anything. And so what that does for me is, is like, uh, like, well, why do I want to spend my time with a company that doesn't like feel very coachable? Uh, and why are you giving me equity if you're not going to even listen to me? So like the, I, you'd be surprised at how often that occurs. Oh, I, I'm not surprised at all. I've, I've been paid to put together plans and people are like, this is brilliant. And I come back and they're like, how's it going? And they're like, oh, that's right. We were supposed to, we had a, you did a plan. We're supposed to do That's right. And they're off doing something else. And then they're wondering why they are failing. <laughs> I like execute the plan, man. <laughs> and look, look, maybe my advice isn't isn't maybe my advice isn't the right the totally the right advice, but then tell me why. Like why you think that. 
because that's going to end up in a much better conversation and potentially a much more productive conversation than just basically ignoring. Uh, and so, but at the end of the day, like, it's just like any like professional sport where, uh, pro professional sport where they, they talk a lot about like, well, what is the coachability of the players? I think that also right. applies to, to, to founders and actually professionals in general. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had conversations with people developing products before and they're not involving their customer in the product development cycle at all. They're, they're just developing blindly. And I'm like, Hey, you should involve your customers so you know that you're building what they want and <laughs> you should you know go be actively participating and find some you know core people to continuously engage with and build relationships with your various types of users that you know represent a large range of users and, and you should always keep it really tight to the product and no no we know what's best we know what's we we read a paper we know what's best and then they they no one likes their product and they don't bring value to the market and then it just goes by yeah. So I've been there. Let's bring up a positive note. Do you know Elias Torres? Um, of Drift? Yeah. Yes. Yes, of course. Oh, nice. Yeah. I saw that you guys are both at HubSpot. I was hanging out with him uh, about 10 days ago in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> okay. Tampa. Okay. That's a random place. That's where he went to school. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. He, he, went, he did engineering uh, at USF, University of South Florida. Yeah. He's probably one of the best recruiters uh, I've ever seen in action. Uh, isn't is he a great personality right oh yes yes he is full of life oh yeah he so we were talking about the different books that we read and he was we were talking about his co-founder and we were in like this back um top area like a speaker's only area for this talk he was giving and just kind of hanging out because i live an hour away from that and the person putting on the event listens to the show so they texted me to say hey we we have him coming and i was like oh i know drift drift's really cool like mm -hmm. you want to come hang out with them before the thing i'm like yeah sure so i went up there and um i was like man i like this guy and he's got the cto role so that's cool yeah yeah we're, i have the luxury and advantage of and, and great benefit of working with him and dave cancel his co-founder for a little bit at hubspot yeah and then they went off and did drift and now that thing's growing rapidly too yeah they're doing they're doing an amazing amazing job and i think they're kind of one of the few the few bright stars in uh, in in the SaaS space right now of, of of companies that are in that like Series B type of place that I think are going to be huge companies. So they're doing a good job. Yeah. So Intercom did the chat revolution. As far in my mind, that was the first time I saw it go real big, and then I saw a, a ton of companies crop up with variances and and how they approach it. And I I if I had to bet money. I would bet money on um, Elias of uh, Drift winning when things need to get lean, right? Like when the when the market hits and let's say money becomes harder to get or you have to rely on your cash flow or things of that nature, just by their management style and interacting with them and hearing their stories and talking about going from 20 to 110, all that stuff, uh, I, I would bet on them to be the ones that emerge victorious from that. Yeah, well, I think like, I think what an important thing, you know, it, any kind of technology company for people to think about is is just a lot of what we do is just a momentum game um, from from not just from a growth standpoint but from a hiring standpoint um, uh, like an ecosystem standpoint of of you know building that energy around your company and that's something that I think drift has really done well and I think a key part of that um, creating that momentum is not only the just the, the grit and willpower of 
of of those two plus David Gerhardt, their director of marketing, and and some mm-hmm. others there. But they're one of the few that has really focused and invested in um, in storytelling and category creation. So. Uh, really, really telling that overall overarching story about like what's changing in our world and and uh, and, and how drift fits into that equation. Um, kind of starting to coin this term called conversational marketing, and it was a playbook that uh, that HubSpot did very well with uh, with inbound marketing, right? And I saw the power of that internally. Is just like no matter what happens in in the macro market when you're kind of creating this momentum behind this this story and this mission, we always talk about our mission internally, but it's really about, you know, are you, are you, are you creating the momentum around that mission externally? Uh, that's, that's kind of like the, the powering force, the wind at your back um, uh, that, that kind of carries you through and, and separates you from the rest. Yeah. Your ability to share those moments that you have as a company growing those amazing high energy moments, if if someone comes to your websites and sees nothing, right? And they're just like, it's a sign up, you know, like if you're not able to transfer your internal energy or put a megaphone on your internal energy and show it off to the world, this is who we are, this is what we're doing. And then, you know, obviously the whole uh, centerpiece is the value you bring to the market, right? If, if you're able to tell your story, bring value to the market and amplify that message and with, with really good people, then you win. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, ha- you're, you're in my mind, I'm just going to call you Mr. Growth, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll put your hashtag as like HGH. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, uh, so for the part of our audience, that's like really lean CTO co-founder, just, just trying to get something off the ground, getting their MVP out. Let's say that I'm going to give you a hypothetical. Let's say you've got these two individuals and they've just finished their MVP and they've worked super hard and scraped together. 10 grand for growth. What sort of advice would you give them on how to spend that 10 grand, those, those limited resources? Like they just built an MVP. Yeah. So they've got an MVP mm-hmm. and they have 10 grand. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, I mean, at that stage, it's really about, um, create. Okay. Well, here's what I see. Let me first tell you what I see a lot of people doing and why it's wrong. Okay. And then, and then, and then what I would probably do differently. Does that sound good? That's amazing. Yes. Okay. So here's what people do with that 10 grand. They, they take that 10 grand and, um, maybe they start to hire somebody and, or or something like that, but they probably plan this big launch about, I'm going to put this thing on, uh, I'm going to get this thing on product on and get all my friends to upvote it. I'm going to write this medium post and maybe get it upvoted to hacker news and write like they invest it all in this launch. And, uh, that has so many problems, uh, with it. Uh, and the reason it has problems with it is because basically what you're going to get with that type of initiative is, uh, just an incredibly, uh, broad set of tire kickers and potential people, and maybe a small percentage of that is uh the actual target audience that um you you've built this product for uh, but what's going to happen is a couple things internally it's going to be incredibly hard to to find the signal through the noise in terms of customer feedback or even data about what's working well and what's not working well because all of a sudden you basically polluted this pool uh with a ton of people that um don't have 
like have nothing to do with the initial target audience that you built for. Even worse is what you, what happens is you create a negative word of mouth cycle. So what happens is uh, you get you you get you attract all this huge massive broad uh, like spectrum of people. Ninety percent plus of them aren't actually the target audience, but they don't really know that. So they come in, they play around with the product, and they're like, "Oh, this thing sucks." And so then whenever your product name comes up, now you have now you have nine for every one person that might be saying good things about the product, you have nine people saying bad things about the product of, oh, like that's yeah, like that that thing sucks or I tried it or something like that. And so this negative word of mouth is outweighing any positive word of mouth you possibly have. Uh, and and so what you what is really hard to I actually think for a lot of founders do because they spend all this time and this energy in, in building this thing and they're just like, oh man, I just want to like announce it to the world is that you need to take a much more targeted approach and you need to be very picky about your initial customers. And so you have to think about, okay, I built my hypothesis is I built this for this type of person and this type of audience. Uh, and then I would go spend that 10 grand um, pop probably in very inefficient ways, non, non ROI positive ways to go get that exact audience to, uh, you know, to play with the product. And so that does a couple things. One is that it doesn't pollute the pool of data, right? So you're going to get much clearer feedback and data about um, if that target, like that MVP, like what, uh, whether or not um, that, that thing is resonating with that target audience. And if it doesn't resonate, you don't, you haven't created a ton of negative word of mouth. You've just disproven this hypothesis and you can move on to your next target audience hypothesis and kind of do a similar, similar thing with them, kind of recruit a small pool of people, see if you really have that product market fit and that. And if you do prove the hypothesis true, all of a sudden you start to create this positive word of mouth cycle because much larger percentage of the people that have tried out the product have uh, have good things to say about it, right? And so that positive outweighs the negative and that cycle really starts to feed on itself. Not until the point where that positive word of mouth cycle has its own moment, like enough momentum on its own should you think about a broad launch, right? So that the broad launch, no matter whatever, if you get a bunch of like tire kickers not in the target audience, uh, uh, there, you know, that positive word of mouth that you've built is still going to outweigh that negative word of mouth. And so like, once again, like, uh, the biggest mistake I see is not being selective and you should be using that first 10 grand to figure out very selective ways, uh, to, to bring in these pool of very focused target audience and test through, test through these hypotheses. Brian, that's why I have you on the show, man. <laughs> Like, come on, get, get you the nugget that you're looking you, for. You yeah. got me the nugget because here's why you're an expert. I'm going to tell you why you're an expert. You're an expert because you and why I liked your answer so much was because one of my favorite things that I go to when learning what to do is learning what not to do. <laughs> and everyone I've asked the question so far has given me a, a strategy for how they would spend the 10. And I was like, I was like, cool, you know, that's awesome. The fact that you gave us the what not to do. Ooh, bring in the value, Brian. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm also very careful not to prescribe strategies. And because whenever you hear somebody prescribe a strategy without actually the full context, what you're actually hearing is just a bias of their own experience, not necessarily the right answer for your situation. 
And so yeah. this is something I've obviously learned, you know, through Reforge and, and helping teach, you know, people in hundreds of different companies, right? And, uh, and so the, though, like, when you're hearing advice from people, you really need to take a step back and say, okay, does this person actually understand the full context of my situation, the product, the target audience? If not, then you put on your filter and say, well, I know what I'm hearing from this person is based on their prior experiences. Do their prior experiences actually fit with my situation? Yes or no. Um, and then you can figure out what to take out of it. So uh, it's, uh, it, it's actually, I think, you know, I love all of the content and going back to a very early conversation about how all of this knowledge never really existed in my first company. We're mm -hmm. almost like in a world where there's like so much knowledge out there. I see a lot of founders uh, like reading something and being like, oh, well, so-and-so really popular person said we should do this. Uh, and, right. uh, and not really like placing those filters. And so I think um, uh, I love hearing about different strategies, but uh, I like be, I'm always trying to be I always try to be very careful of, of prescribing anything because uh, I know I know so little about their their exact situation. Yeah, and that's when we were doing the show. <laughs> at first, I was sharing some recordings before it, before it became a podcast. I was sharing recordings about conversations I was having with other CTOs around the book, and then I was sharing them with my friends. And they said, "Oh man, there's so much value in that. Just listening to that conversation." I'm like, "Really? We're just kind of talking about what we do and our experiences." And so it was a, it was a very interesting thing to me because what this whole conversation allows is for someone to have to learn about you and to have more context of where you're coming from versus like an Instagram quote about what you should be doing. Yeah. Right. Or like a two minute, you know, clip of, of something out of context. Now, one thing I'm just curious as what you think about this. Um, I always like to look for universal truths, like first principles. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I've kind of identified as like universal truths with, with this whole business or technology startup thing is to build relevant relationships. Sure. So when when I when I talk to a lot of people, like all right, I'll t a specific example. Somebody had an application, and they were like, "Oh, if I could, I'm going to get the downloads, and it's going to be you know twelve dollars a download, and I'm going to get so many." And they you know started running through that whole pitch. There's a hundred thousand people. I want one percent. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yep. Yep. So so they went down that path, and they're like, "We're going to blow. We're going to spend all of our money." like just to push that real hard and we're basically going to run out of money by doing that. We're going to push all of our money and then it's going to convert and it's going to be great. And I'm like, how many people do you know in this space? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, like how many relationships do you have Yeah. that, that with, with, with users or with companies that have users or just general pillars in your space? Like, and they look at me, they're like, well, I mean, we kind of talked to this one person. I'm like, look, <laughs> I'm like, don't run the ads please like just don't you're going to run them you'll get some conversion but you'll get a couple maybe a thousand dollars you're not going to get enough to survive right well you won't even know what ads to run unless you oh come on first so exactly and you don't have a big enough budget to test it without talking to you know right right so um i was like go develop i was like take that 10 grand like go develop some relationships man like just go talk to people and I find that it's really interesting. One of the pieces of advice that I tend to be giving people, um, which I firmly believe is good advice, is to like they, they seem to not have a problem going and sitting in front of 20 different investors back to back to back to back to back to, back to pitch them, to get them to give them their money 
right, to get money from them. But they seem <laughs> to have a real problem going to 20 companies in their space and asking them for advice and help and feedback just because. Yep. It, it, it blows my mind. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it stems from a lot of different places, but certainly most is like, even now, like for Reforge, right? Like I, oh man, every time we get a negative piece of feedback, it just like, you know, it's like a stab to the stomach and twisting the knife, right? Like that's how it, that's how it feels. Um, I can shake off, uh, you know, comments from an investor because I'm like, oh, like what is, what, what do they know? Right. But yeah, but man, when it comes from the, when it comes from the, the target audience, oh God, it just goes straight to the core. And, but that's like, it, you know, you, I think uh, uh, as like a, somebody working in the early stages, you got to really figure out how to embrace that and do something productive with it. And like, I, obviously that's a very, it's much easier said than done. Um, yeah. but you know, for any of those that haven't read, uh, Ray Dalio from Bridgewater's book, recent book called principles. I thought it, I think it's very good. And he has this whole framework, which is, which is like pain plus pain plus reflection equals, equals progress. Um, and I thought that was like a very elegant way to, I thought that was a very elegant way to, to put it. So, um, but yeah, look that, believe me, I understand, uh, I understand like the, the, the pain avoidance of that negative feedback, but at the end of the day, that's what, that's, what's going to drive you forward to improve yeah and it's like so the pain happens and then you kind of have to like you've got that choice of like holding on to it or instead training yourself to go into all right i felt the pain here's the pain what do i learn from that take take note of that right take stock of that all right now and then i instantly shift my mind back to how can i bring value like where i say okay i understand there's the pain there's the negative got it good, make a note of it. Then I instantly shift my, uh, focus right back onto here's the tribe that, that we're bringing value to and let's continue on our path of improving and bringing value to them. And then what will happen is the pains that are the most important will come up the most often. And then I can realize, all right, well, we've had this happen two or three times. This has to be addressed now. Yeah. Well, I think that last point's actually important, which is that when you when you do get when you do experience this pain or negative feedback um our reaction should actually be to go find more of it or like to attempt to go find more of it right because because the biggest thing you want to know is well is this is this pain common in your in your target audience right if yes like you've got like a huge signal on like something you need to need to fix or a direction that you need to go but i think I think our, our more like human instinct is when we experience pain is to run away from it, not towards it. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, it's like this, this weird flip you guys got to switch. And I wish I had exact advice on how to, to, to do that. But I almost think it's probably just conditioning over time. Yeah. We'll send them off to like a Tony Robbins course. (laughs) 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 When we, when you're encountering, when the things get too human, We'll send you to human experts, right? We will we'll deal with the, the company stuff and the stuff that is company and slightly human. But when you get really, really human, uh, I find a lot of uh, uh, interesting information over in those spaces. So, yeah, D- dude, you are awesome, Brian. I, I like thank the you. way you process data. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. No, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, it was a fun conversation.
Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.